0: especially if you're a father or grandfather here today. Welcome to Grace. Thanks for the ways in which you uh, seek to invest in the next generation and for the ways that you show love and care and guidance to your kids. Uh, Those are great. And especially your presence here speaks volumes uh, to your family and beyond. Happy Father's Day to all of you. You know, we live in a culture that loves to uh, propagate the idea that fathers are absent or stupid or passive. And that makes us laugh and should make us cry. But when fathers lead and love and sacrifice, it is a wonderful thing. So thanks for being a dad. If that's you, we salute you today. This week, I looked up what fathers want for Father's Day. And here's what I came across. A survey of 2,000 dads revealed that three in four dads prefer an experience over a physical gift for Father's Day. So if you haven't gotten them a gift, you're in luck. At least 75% of you. The top gift you can give your dad this year? A simple phone call. And all of us could do that. Four in ten Americans say a big, juicy steak, fathers say, would satisfy their Father's Day this year. While 38% say they could really just work with some peace and quiet. So steak or peace and quiet, you're you're in luck there. Taking in a ball game with the family also scored high, 38% said that would be a lovely Father's Day treat. Now that basketball is officially done, football doesn't start till the end of August, this is the the black hole of sports, unless you're a baseball fan, but not a Cubs fan. (laughs) Interestingly, 64% of dads reported that they specifically don't want anything that says, quote, world's best dad, end quote, on it. So if you have a mug to give to dad, put it away. He probably doesn't want it. 79% 79% of dads say they like to bond with their children over food. My, several of my children are here. Dad, uh, your dad uh, agrees with that. But if it's a cookout you're after, stay off the grill, because one in three dads say that if someone's grilling, it's going to be them. Another six in ten dads feel like there's no better cook in the house than themselves. I have no idea who these fathers are. <laughs> but I think they're a little off. Mom, if you need to tell them that, feel free. Finally, the survey found that it takes four years after your first child is born before hitting, quote, peak dad, which I guess means for those of us who have children older than four years old, it's a downslope from here on out. (laughs) The great uh, baseball player, Wade Boggs, once said, anyone can be a father, but it takes someone special to be a dad. And he writes to his own father, That's why I call you dad, because you're so special to me. To be a father is often a biological thing, sometimes an adoptive thing, but to be a dad means sacrifice and investment and example. So so Wade Boggs was onto something, to be sure, in our culture. Back in biblical times, in the biblical culture, there was a lot said about fathers, but if we searched high and low throughout scripture, To find one sentence, one exhortation about dads, it'd be hard to improve on what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord, or the nurture and admonition, the old King James says. In other words, don't stir up or provoke your children to anger. That comes pretty natural to many of us fathers. Instead, point them toward, shape them for God. Six weeks ago, if you're with us here at Grace, it was Mother's Day. We looked at four women in the Bible whom God used, whatever their circumstances, whatever their imperfections, whatever their flaws. And those four women in the Bible covered a wide range of human experience. So today we're going to return the favor. We're going to look at four men whose lives, by way of example, either to follow or a warning against, show us how God uses fathers, ideally, to shape and form the next generation to pursue him. Because the call for for all of us, children included, is to trust God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to uh, get a Bible Uh, To open that, we're going to be in several different places today. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have hosts and hostesses who would be glad to give you one. Uh, We're going to ask for nimble fingers because we're going to be in various parts of the Bible. So uh, get one, uh, preferably perhaps a hard copy so that you can move from place to place rather quickly. We're going to see the examples of four dads in the Bible. And the first one is Noah. Noah. And you don't have to turn far in your Bibles to find that, Genesis chapters 6 and 7. And our theme with Noah is trust, choosing to obey whatever the cost. Noah, choosing to obey whatever the cost. Noah's is uh, one of the most famous, one of the oldest fathers in the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, if you do the math, he's approximately 10 generations removed from the first man, first husband, first father named Adam. But in distinction to Adam's circumstance, created into a perfect world, Noah was created into a very imperfect world. We find out how imperfect in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Wow. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was an exception. Amidst all the wickedness, all the evil... All the selfishness, even amidst God's regret, it says here, Noah stood out. He found favor in the Lord's eyes and for a good reason. We find out in chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Into the cosmic story of human history, appears Noah in this divine drama. And the description of Noah kind of glistens right off the page there. Righteous, blameless, and faithful, which are not only traits that we ought to seek, they stand in profound distinction to the rest of humanity who has just been described. Noah stood out. We live in a society in which it takes less and less to stand out more and more. Things that were once culturally applauded or at least culturally tolerated now often seem to be culturally despised. Doing your job, treating others with respect, honoring your commitments, being willing to sacrifice, keeping a cool head, valuing a restrained tongue, choosing not to defame, When we obey God in the little things, we end up, as Paul writes later in the New Testament, looking like children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, Philippians 2, who shine among them like stars in the sky. We stand out. And Noah stood out. Look at the description there. He was righteous in his lifestyle. He was blameless among his contemporaries very wicked contemporaries, and he walked faithfully with God. That's quite a trio. And for Noah, God saw all of this. Because in light of the corruption, in light of the violence that described humanity, Noah stood out. And because of that, God took action, centered on Noah. God declared his intent here to destroy the earth, destroy humanity but not Noah. He he tells Noah to build an ark. Long list of specifications there. And he makes a covenant God does with Noah that he would save Noah and his family from judgment, that Noah would be a kind of remnant in an otherwise judged world. And again, God gives Noah this lengthy list of assignments on which creatures and how many to gather into the ark. When the flood would come. And that's exactly what Noah did. Look at Genesis 6.22. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. In case you didn't get that. Genesis 7.5. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah obeyed God. So put yourself in Noah's sandals. Noah's told to build a giant boat. On dry land for no apparent purpose. And when he was inevitably asked about this endeavor, he spoke about a God they didn't know and a judgment they didn't believe in. Reasonable estimates have uh, Noah from the beginning until uh, the end of the construction, about 75 years, which means Noah probably endured a lot of shaking heads, a lot of muttered critique. Noah may have experienced open mockery and shame, ridicule, misunderstanding for obeying God. It's possible that Noah even got pushback from his wife and kids. Dad, what do you think you're doing? Honey, are you out of your mind? But Noah chose God's way at the expense of others' approval because Noah knew that the approval of God was more important than anyone else's. He counted the cost and he obeyed. What about you men? What about you dads, grandpas? Could that be said about you as you lead your family, that you're making choices that obey God rather than win the approval of others? That you do what is right before God, even if maybe even your own family doesn't approve or applaud? That you live in light of eternity rather than the temporary approval of those around If you follow the story, Noah's obedience not only pleases God, but it pays off because obedience has a peculiar way of doing that. Together with his wife, their three sons, their three wives, Noah's family escapes destruction. He follows God's plan. He builds and enters the ark. And all of humanity and all the creatures perish save Noah and his family and those creatures in the ark. About a year later, after the flood, the destruction, they exit the ark. And God makes the promise that he would never destroy the the world again like that. Genesis 9, 1, then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's almost identical to what God said to the first man, Adam. But this time, God found a man who would obey him. Noah had already demonstrated that. And Noah's example speaks volumes to us as fathers. He leads by example. He follows God's directives. He's willing to be misunderstood. He lives for an audience of one. That's a Father's Day example, dads. And how wonderful it is when fathers live and lead in this way. Take note of that. Second man, decidedly less worthy of applause is Eli. Eli. If the theme with Noah was, was trust, the theme of Eli is greed or coveting. With Eli, we see him modeling selfishness under the guise of service. Modeling selfishness under the guise of service. Noah was a shining star, Eli decidedly not. We see the story in 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Ninth book there in your Bible. We were there on Mother's Day looking at the account of Hannah. Same general story, now we focus on Eli. A little background. There was a man named Elkanah. He went up to a place called Shiloh to worship, which involved sacrifice. Elkanah had two wives, Penaniah and Hannah. There where they sacrificed, there were priests. Two young ones, Hophni and Phinehas, and their dad, Eli. Got it? Elkanah was the father with two wives. Eli was the priest with two sons. And we look at his example today. What's the connection between Hannah and Eli? When Hannah went up there distraught as she was because she was barren or unable to have children, Eli was confused and even accused her of being drunk. She said, I'm not drunk. I'm praying earnestly for God to give me a child. Eli backed off on what he said and wished her well. Later, Hannah was given a son by God. His name was Samuel. And, and in fulfilling her vows to God, Hannah gave Samuel to the service of the Lord. We pick up the story of Eli, one of those priests in 1 Samuel 2.12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. <laughs> How's that for a compliment? They had no regard for the Lord. Other translations say they were worthless. They were wicked. This is a moral evaluation of the sons. Why? Because they had no regard for the Lord. One translation says they did not know the Lord. And the evidence is... Is there Verse 13, 1 Samuel 2. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now a little context is needed here. In most of world history, in many places around the globe, meat is not plentiful or cheap. Most of us who have grown up in this country in recent decades think of meat as plentiful and lots of variety, and at least until recently, cheap. But in most places, including ancient Israel, not so. I think of times that I've been in Africa eight times or so, where we've sat around a couple of us from the West and many of our African brothers as we were eating, there was a very conscious reminder that we were not to hoard or take lots of the meat. Meat meat was a kind of delicacy, not something that we're used to where every meal in large quantities. And for you to take more than was merited would be an act of shame, an act of selfishness. Why? Because there wasn't much of it. That was probably true in the time of Eli and his sons, but it didn't stop them. These two sons leveraged their role as priests to get additional meat that was brought for sacrifice. Worship, the root of the word, means sacrifice, to bow down. It was often connected with animal sacrifices then. We don't come with animal sacrifices here. We come, we sing, we greet, and that sounds all too foreign and bloody to us. But the idea of sacrifice is still part of worshiping the same God. Now we're the ones who offer ourselves as sacrifices. These two sons of Eli took advantage of their role. There were certain stipulations about caring for the priests, but they went well beyond these. They were extorting the people in evil ways. We see that in verses 15 and 16. In fact, Those sons would threaten violence or force upon people who didn't do what they told them to. And the text calls that out, verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They were manipulating their role as priests for selfish gain. They were sinning with impunity. And this was abominable to God and to the people as well, and it should be. God is particularly outraged when religious practices are misused by those with responsibility or status. That's one reason why staff at a church, elders and pastors in particular, are called to live above reproach. In the way we live, in the way we handle money, in the way we manage offerings, in the way we engage with others, in the way we lead in worship, we're supposed to do so with a humility and a submission that reflects the Lord. Because we are stewards and servants. He is the owner and the master. Pray for us that we would live in humility and submission to him. And hold us to a rightful standard. The story of Eli's sons gets even worse. Chapter 2, verse 22, 1 Samuel. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about the things his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. Know, my sons. The report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. This record is beyond scandalous. Eli's adult sons serving as priests were taking sexual advantage of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These women were like the hostesses or the deaconesses at the place of worship. And those with authority, those with status, priests like Hophni and Phinehas were sexually using them. Leaders in the name of religion manipulating their role For their own sexual gratification. And the Lord condemns this outright. I'd love to stand up here and say, 3,000 years later, on another side of the globe, in the gatherings and ministries of the church, this doesn't happen. But I can't, because this kind of abominable sin still occurs. Sometimes consensually, sometimes with threat of force, always wrong. And we know it because we live in the day and age of the internet. We live in the age of social media. We hear these stories and they should sober us all. And I want to stand up here as a pastor and plead with you that there are many pastors and elders and staff in many churches that conduct themselves honorably. And I would be right if I said that. But the fact is that there are situations of adultery and manipulation and abuse that are still far too frequent and always damaging. For Samuel 2.34 outlines God's judgment. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. God is saying here that he doesn't trifle with the abuse of his name and the abuse of worship in his name. You might sit here today and go, well, what's that have to do with fathers? A ton, actually. Verses 22 to 25 describes Eli's rebuke of his sons, their their sin-soaked hearts. But there's a charge against Eli in verse 29. Why do you honor your sons more than me by yourselves on the choice parts of every offering? Eli, you are guilty too. It's not just your son's sin. They've learned this from you. You, They are co-participants with you. Here here the pattern is outlined not just of Eli's sons, but of Eli himself. And because of that, there will be judgment. There will be loss of blessing on further descendants. In other words, what Eli does is not private. It is not isolated. It models. It greatly affects other people. And the same is true for you, Dad. How you live, the patterns you set, the priorities you choose, Mark other people, especially your wife, your children, your grandchildren. You and I have the opportunity to provide patterns and defaults and values to others. But we can also display selfishness that results in pain and judgment for others. So let me ask you, Dad, Grandpa, what what are the spiritual patterns that you're showing? What, What are you choosing in your relationships and your sexuality? What do you model with your finances and your generosity, do they see? What do you prioritize with leisure and comfort? See, Eli learned the hard way that his choices cost. And he's a warning to us, especially dads. Noah trust, very good. Eli, greed, coveting, quite bad. Third example, Solomon. You can turn over to Ecclesiastes. We're not going to read a lot there. The story of Solomon covers multiple chapters and many things he's written in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs. If there's one theme, it's that of wisdom with Solomon confessing emptiness upon achieving success. Solomon lived with the pattern of his parents, David and Bathsheba. The first child conceived in adultery didn't live. Solomon was a later sibling of them. And Solomon lived with the choices of his parents. Let me say to you, parents, God is gracious. That's good news. God is the master at making lemonade out of the lemons of your choosing. But those choices will leave scars and wounds in your children, some that you will never fully realize. So what you do today, parents, dads, what you've chosen in the past affects your children's tomorrow. So choose wisely. Fathers, choose wisely as a leader in your family. Choose wisely in your relationships. Show self-control again and again. In the early chapters of Proverbs, Solomon writes, my son, show discipline. Be wise, not a fool. Be self-controlled, not unrestrained. Solomon knows because he's lived. If you know the story of Solomon, he writes about this in Ecclesiastes. Whatever he put his mind to, whatever he wanted, he got. His life was a life of thriving wealth, women, status, comfort, all that the world had to offer, but it didn't satisfy. Everything is meaningless vanity, a vapor, he writes. We've said this before, one of the ways that God uses to discipline us is sometimes giving us exactly what we want, what we ask for. We say, I want it my way. And God says, have it your way. And we suffer in success. Solomon was left empty in all of his accomplishments, which means, fathers, we need to prepare our children for the hardship of failure but we also need to prepare them for the potential emptiness of success of accomplishment if our children learn to attach their identity and their commitment contentment i should say to knowing god they will not go wrong if they learn to attach their identity and their contentment to knowing god they will not go wrong Solomon slowly learned that. He he asked for wisdom and he got it. So should we. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Of all the people in the world who should ask for wisdom, it should be parents. Life reminds us every day that we need help. And God gives generously. Children often don't know what they don't know, but a few decades of life teach us that we know what we don't know. We need help. Smart parents ask for wisdom, and God gives it. He gives it primarily through the scriptures. We have to be people who are reading and soaking in the book. God gives it sometimes through people as well. In fact, one of the most undertapped resources for parents and wisdom is their own parents. The grandparents of our children, Parents, especially fathers, take note of that. Unfortunately, many parents rarely ask their own parents for advice on life and parenting. And others who hear it refuse to take it in. I've been convicted of that personally in recent weeks. That I had to ask my parents, my wife's parents, for input not just their prayers. It's easy to go, well, they've never parented children in the 21st century, and I'd be right. But human nature hasn't changed in the 21st century. The core temptations of life haven't changed in our time. And our parents understand human nature. If you have believing parents, all the more reason for you to ask them for input And their prayers. Grandparents, you're wise to restrain your unsolicited advice. Parents, you're wise to ask for godly input. Because your parents can probably help you in more ways than you think. And above all, they want you to avoid the mistakes that they themselves have made. Ask. Fourth and finally, as we look at these fathers in the Bible, Zechariah, over in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And if there's a theme in his life, it's the theme of release, stewarding children for use in God's plan. We end with Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist. You might remember the name and the story back in December of 2021. As we began Luke, we looked at this. There's an angel who who comes to Zechariah, who's a priest. His wife up until now is barren, Elizabeth. She would later become pregnant and bear a special son, the forerunner to Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. The angel said to Zechariah in Luke chapter one, verse 14, he, John, will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. For the Lord. You might remember the story. Zechariah was both excited and confused. There was some doubt in him. How could this be possible? And because he questioned the angel of the Lord, he was temporarily made mute for the duration of the pregnancy and shortly after birth, eight days after, to be sure. But at John the Baptist's circumcision, something amazing happened. The, The Lord loosened. Zechariah's tongue, and we find out that his heart's disposition, his joy, his anticipation of what God had promised had not waned. He still believed that God would fulfill his promise about his son, and he anticipated how God would do that. His speech, his blessing at the end of chapter one expresses that. It's called Zechariah's Benedictus, his benediction, his praise. It begins in chapter 1, verse uh, 65 and beyond. Uh, There's a lengthy praise there of uh, Jesus as the Savior, as God sent one. But it's not until verse 76 that Zechariah hones in on his own son. See, there's the cosmic view, there's the salvation history view of what God is doing through Jesus Christ, but there's also the very personal fatherly view that Zechariah has for his own son, John the Baptist. Verse 76, Zechariah speaks of him, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. Let me put this in distinctly fatherly terms. Zechariah confesses, acknowledges here that John the Baptist doesn't belong to him. That John doesn't belong to Elizabeth, that John is not owned by his parents. They are stewards, not owners. God alone has ownership over John's life. And that's a very important, a very timely lesson from Zechariah to us. The other day I was talking to a friend who has extensive background in the educational field. And he made a statement, not the first time I've heard it, but one that I remember. He said, and I paraphrase, that we have a widespread problem today of parents worshipping their children. Worshipping. In other words, many parents are making idols out of their children, hoping that those kids will bring them personal return on their parental investment what are those returns you say well let me name some possibilities many parents think that their children will give them status and significance if my son they might say if my daughter is the star athlete is the scholar is the creative artistic wonder is the social magnet then I will be somebody important We say that we only want their success, but deep down, there's often a lot of my status mixed in. So we enroll our children in all kinds of things, none of which are inherently wrong, but can be terrible for them and us. Things like unrestrained, life-sucking travel sports, things like academic acceleration techniques, talent tutoring that we're willing to give tons of money and time to, trying to organize their friendship groups just the way we like it. We'll do anything to ensure their success, and often, often, we hollow out our children in the process. Not a few parents, usually a few years older than I am, look back on those days with exhaustion And regret. And not a few children resent it. Parents, remember, your children belong to God and they were made for Him. And the question for us in looking at the example of Zechariah is is that evident in the priorities that we choose for them? Fathers, are you leading in that way? You and I bear a unique responsibility in our family. Sometimes we're called not even to capitulate to the members of our family. Let me go a bit further. Many parents are so caught up in a desire for their kids to have social and career success that they forget what makes their kids most useful to God. That they understand and are committed to the mission of God. See, if... If Jesus' great commission is to make disciples of the nations, and if those are God's marching orders for all and every believer, then those priorities should reign in our parenting. How do we do that? Expose your kids to the gospel message. Pray earnestly for your children's salvation and their subsequent baptism. Value the local church by being present and participating And prioritize and pray for lost people, those around you and those far from you on the other side of the globe. Talk with your children about how they intend to invest themselves in the Great Commission, in their relationships, in their careers, in their location, in their giving. Fathers, lead your wives and children. Grandfathers, the same. Lead them to value what's closest to God's heart. Talk about spiritual purpose in life and then model that. That's what Zechariah shows here. When Zechariah heard of God's calling on his son's life, he didn't moan in despair. He didn't say, oh, but God, what about John's safety? What about John's acceptance and his comfort? What about John's future family? God, what about my grandchildren? No, Zechariah and Elizabeth rejoiced. Because the best thing for a child to know is that they matter and that God's call is on their lives. See, living for God is the greatest status, is the greatest success that a child can have. Dad, do you believe that? Do your kids know that you believe that? The original command from God to the first humans was to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And of course, central to that is the reproduction of humanity. And that takes a father and a mother. And those children are gifts, regardless of what our culture says. Remember this, children are a gift from the Lord. Psalm 127 verse 3 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring, a reward from him. Your children are a reward from God. Think about that. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior or children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. I'll let you decide what full means there. And yet parenting, this is for moms and dads, fathers and mothers, is not simply about bringing children into the world. It's about shaping them and guiding them to know the God who made them. To know the father who loves them. To know the savior who died for them. To have the spirit of God living within them. Which means that the chief role of an imperfect father and I am one. Is to point them to their perfect father. Of which there's only one. And the labor of doing so goes way back in history. Goes all the way back to near the beginning of the Bible. Goes back to things that God said early on to his people. Deuteronomy chapter 6, a passage that at least in part may be familiar to you, says this. Verse 1 These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. This more familiar, perhaps, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Parents especially, pay attention. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, whatever you do, wherever you go, point the next generation to God. They will find out who they are. They will learn what they owe him and they will discover all that God the Savior has done for them. Godly fathers are central to God's purpose and submission to God's design is essential for godly fathers. Dads, We're for you. God is really for you. God's given you children so that you can shape them. Men, God's placed you on the planet so that you can be a spiritual father to others around you to shape them to know the perfect father. And God says to us through the warnings and through the examples of men like these in the scriptures, that we should step up, we should step in, and God delights to show us how, if we'll trust him. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your scriptures, and we thank you for the challenge that they give us. And we thank you, those of us who are fathers, for the call on our lives. I pray that the men in here like me would not only be humbled by the challenge, but would be encouraged by the power that you give. And I pray that we would, in this generation, with the children you've given to us, step up and step in so that the next generation might sing the praises of the God who made them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.